I'd like for you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want to read verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, Remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Here's the text. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. The goal of our instruction, um, have you, I suppose each of us has at some time or another sat in a classroom and asked, what's the purpose of all of this stuff? I can remember uh, being in algebra class, having already decided that I was going to be a preacher, wondering why I had to learn logarithms. And I'm learning logarithms. Is that how you pronounce it? Logarithms. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, this is going to come in handy when I, when I get in the ministry. I'll, really, I'll use that probably in every sermon, these logarithms. What's the purpose of this stuff? The Apostle Paul uses a term that comes from a barracks, army barracks. The, the purpose of our command, he said, is the idea of someone, some superior, handing down something that is to be transferred to someone else. And so Paul is saying that we've just taken what our superior has given us and we're transmitting that to you. Now it's not that you just take something that somebody has told you and pass it on to somebody else so they could have that information. In fact, he says there is a goal and a purpose for all this instruction and we're handing that down to you with, re, with, a, with a view to that purpose and goal. And we know that if we do not shoot at the goal and hit it, then all we have done is just fruitless discussion and meaningless chatter. Now I have been doing a little looking back and we'll continue to do that. That's what you do when you get old. You know, you, you, get, you look back, especially when you come to a, the end of a ministry. So I've had some little moments of reflection because I know that one day I'm going to stand before God 
And he's going to say something like this. Okay, girl, let's see about these 15 years you've spent in Durant. You preached over uh, 3,000 times, 3,000 sermons, lectures, lessons. Now, what has been the goal of that instruction? And is it, has it just been fruitless discussion and meaningless chat? Because when a person encounters God and he obeys Him and responds to the revelation of God, something happens in that person that changes him. He's never the same again. And when a person comes to the house of God and encounters God in worship, he leaves with a moral and spiritual change occurring. He, he goes away more like Jesus than when He came. If He has shot at the target, has experienced this meaningful and purposeful object. Now, that doesn't happen all of a sudden. God says that we are being changed from glory to glory, and it is a process. But when a person encounters God in worship, he goes away different than when he came, if the purpose of worship has been met. I have a feeling that a lot of us waste a lot of time in church. There's a lot of us who waste a lot of time in church. And all we do is add to our judgment. Because now what you hear this morning, you're going to be responsible for for the rest of your life. And so the Apostle Paul says to, to Timothy, I want you to stay on in Ephesus, and I want you to pass to others the command of the superior, and I want you to do it in view of the fact that there is a meaningful purpose and goal of that discussion and that preachment. The meaningful purpose is this, that we have love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And each one of those aspects of that one goal has a relationship Love from a pure heart, that's, my relation, that's our relationship to one another. A good conscience, that's our relationship to ourselves, how we feel about ourselves. And a sincere faith is our relationship with God. And you can't have one without the other. In other words, you can't love somebody else if you don't love yourself. And you can't love yourself unless you love God. So one builds on the other. Where does this love from a pure heart come from? It comes from a good conscience. Uh, it, uh, James says that the reason why we have all of this warring and strife among us is because we have warring and strife within ourselves. This, this state will never be the same again. I mean, we've, we've encountered something this week that we'll never get over. Now, where are these, what, what is happening in this violent world? Well, I think that part of what is happening in this violent world is that there's so much turmoil that's going on inside of each of us. And we can't love someone else as long as we don't love ourselves. And we can't love ourselves unless we're right with God. And so the goal of this instruction, he says, is that a person be right with others, right with himself, and right with God. Let's look at it together. Love from a pure heart. John says that a man cannot love somebody else if he's not right with God. Now, I have... Uh, I think I have uh, noted that wherever there has been a genuine revival in the church, there is always a horizontal 
implication of that revival. There's always a horizontal impact. In other words, wherever you see a church experiencing revival, what you see are people getting right with one another. Some of you may have read or been reading about this phenomenon is occurring down in Brownwood, Texas at Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. It's normal Sunday morning. That's just a church about like this one. And this, this preacher got up to preach and he finished his sermon and then the Spirit of God fell on that place. And they went into this long afternoon session of people getting right with God and right with each other. This pastor came to uh, Southwestern Seminary and preached at chapel, and the same thing occurred there, much like the Asbury revivals back a few um, uh, years ago. Just a phenomenal thing occurring. I was talking to my friend uh, Henry Blackaby, who's concerned about spiritual renewal in the Southern Baptist Convention. We were talking on the phone the other day. He'd been down to Brownwood just to see what is going on down there. And he said, Jerry, it's this remarkable thing that when God just fell on that place that Sunday, all of a sudden people began to get right with one another. And he said, I'm not sure what happened and what order it happened. It doesn't matter what order it happened, but... But, but all of a sudden, he said, as God began to move on that congregation, the first thing that happened was they began to renew love for each other and friendships and ask for forgiveness and begin to bond together in a unity. He said it was absolutely awesome and incredible. Love from a pure heart, our relationship toward one another. Now, I don't want this sermon to digress into a, uh, a little... Um, exercise in a Greek uh, lexicon, but I want to take some of these words and look at them with you. First of all, I want us to look at the word love. Love from a pure heart, love. It's, it's the word that, that refers to love in its practical sense. It has nothing to do with feeling. It has to do with, with, with giving itself away for the welfare of another. Keith Miller helps us to understand it when he tells about his neighbor's kid that lived just, you know, across the driveway. And he said his neighbor's kid was just absolutely the ugliest, snotty-nosed uh, kid, always giving nasty uh, uh, signs to him with his hands, you know. Use that to think of what that means. Always arguing and, and talking back to his father, you know. And, and he said his kid would ride his bike or his tricycle up and down the driveway and he'd drive out in the street and turn around and drive back up the driveway and his dad would tell him to stay out of the street and he never would, just sass his daddy. He said one day he was sitting on the porch looking over there at this repulsive, obnoxious, snotty-nosed kid. And he said, I got to thinking, now what if I were able to look down the street and I saw a car coming at breakneck speed, out of control, and I saw this little kid at the same time going down that driveway and I knew he was going to go out in that street and get hit by that car. What would I do? Applaud? No, he said, I wouldn't do that. He said, he said all of a sudden, I knew what I would do. He said, I would jump up from where I was and I would rush, I would run out in the street if it was necessary. I would give my life to save that kid. And suddenly, said, I understood what agape love is about, what the love of Calvary was about. It wasn't about Jesus who had this warm, affectionate feeling toward people who have beaten on him and spitting on him. It was that he loved in a practical way, that is, he was willing to give himself away for the welfare of others. That's love that's described here. And it's from a pure heart. Now the word pure there means unmixed. 
It's like what you, when you go into a nice restaurant and you order ketchup and it won't come out of the bottle. You have to beat on it, you know, in the bottle. Then you might go into a greasy spoon and order ketchup and just kind of turn it over. It's a blop, you know, this big old glob just kind of falls out. You, you know that the, 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 the owner of the restaurant has mixed that ketchup with some water, save a few bucks on his overhead. That's mixed. That's, that's impure. And when he's talking about love from a pure heart, he's talking about love that gives itself away without an ulterior mixed motive. And he had this raging conflict that Jesus have with these Pharisees because what they did, they did from an ulterior motive. I mean, they kept the law pure in purity. They had a, pure, a purity of body. I mean, they made a science of keeping the law. You've heard of the bleeding Pharisees? The bleeding Pharisees were those guys that put uh, blinders on their eyes so that when they went out, they wouldn't see anything evil. They were already running into buildings and trees and getting all bruised and scratched. And they, you know, you know, a Pharisee wouldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath day. That was carrying a load, true story. And they wouldn't eat an egg laid by a hen on the Sabbath because the poor hen had to labor to lay it. I mean, it was just ridiculous, but true. They kept the letter of the law. But Jesus said, you whitewashed on the outside, but you're full of decay on the inside. For everything you do is from an ulterior motive, even your prayers. And so what they would do, would, they'd walk down the street, this guy would have a guy coming along behind him with a trumpet. And when he got into the midst of the crowd, he'd say, okay, blow the trumpet. And a guy would blast down on the trumpet. Now you imagine yourself walking down the street somewhere in a busy, crowded city and somebody blasts down on the trumpet. What you're going to do is jump about that high, then you're going to turn and look and see what happened. And as soon as that happened, this guy would bow, you know, he'd lift his head to heaven and pray. And when they came up to a beggar on the side of the street, He'd say, okay, blow the trumpet. And he'd blast down on the trumpet. The guy reached into his robe and, and pulled out a denarii, put it in the beggar's cup or hat, whatever he had. And, and Jesus said, Whatever you, everything you do, you do from an ulterior motive. And the goal of our instruction is this, that you give your life away for the welfare of others for no other reason than the very fact of your love. Well, you see, the, the issue is not necessarily what you do for God. The issue is why you do what you do for God. I wonder if we come to the end of life and we stood before God and He said, all right, you got all those sermons. You got files of them. Some of you keep a record on the side in your margin of when I preached what. One guy, I won't name his name, said, Okay, Gerald, you've been here 15 years. When you leave, you've got five years of good sermons. <laughs> Guess who said that? You know. You, you've got a files and, and categories. You, you know, and, and I think God's going to say to some of us, Okay, did you love from a heart that had no ulterior motive except for love? second goal of our instruction is a good conscience. Now the word good there, it means good in and of itself. It means well-pleasing in and of itself. The word conscience is a, com is, a, uh, is a compound word. The word con means with, 
And the word science means knowledge. It means to know with. So what he's saying is that the conscience is what you know about yourself. And he said the, 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 the goal of our instruction is that when we evaluate what we know about ourselves, what we know about ourselves brings satisfaction, makes us feel pleased. Ah, did you hear that? That the purpose of preaching and teaching is that a person who hears can come to a place in his life where because of his response to God, he can look into the depths of his life and say, I'm okay, I'm well-pleasing to him. Now, Paul is saying in essence that, that you know stuff about yourself that nobody else knows. You know, thank God for that, right? A lady came to Ron Dunn one time and, and she was all distraught and she said, uh, you know, I'm just really hurt because a lady has said some things about me. Now, Ron Dunn is not what you'd call your best comforting counselor. And, and he, his response was, well, you probably need to be glad that she doesn't know any more about you than she does. And, and then he said, now, don't hit me. You know, don't, before you hit me, let me say this. I don't know anybody, he said, myself included, that would like for other people to know about me what I know about myself. Would you? Would you like it if, if the folks you know know as much about you as you know about yourself? I don't think so. And so the Apostle Paul says, the goal of our instruction is this, that when you discover yourself like you really know yourself to be, you have a good feeling about it. Contrary to public opinion, the goal of preaching is not to make people feel bad. Now, I've had people say to me, boy, pastor, that was a great sermon. I just feel terrible. You know, I bet you've said this. Haven't you said this? I don't feel like I've been to church unless I leave feeling bad. What a deal. The goal of, the, of, of instruction is not cause you to feel bad, but what it is to cause is this, for you to look inside of yourself, and if you find when you look inside yourself those things that you cannot say are pleasing, neither pleasing to you nor to God, and go to business with God, that's the goal of instruction. It's what uh, Seneca the teacher of Nero, he told about this habit, this, this, this practice, listen, about the Stoic, the Stoic Seneca, what, what, uh, what he said about the practice of one. Listen to this. When the day was over and Sextius had gone to his night's rest, he used to ask his mind, what bad habit of yours have you cured today? What vice have you registered, resisted? In what respect are you better? Anger will cease and will be more moderate when it knows it must daily face the judge. Could anything be more beautiful than this habit of examining the whole day? What a sleep is that which follows self-scrutiny. How calm, how deep and free 
when the mind is either praised or admonished, when it has looked into itself and like a secret censor makes a report upon its own moral state, I avail myself of this power and daily try my own case. I love it. I daily try my own case. I look inside myself to see what is there that I cannot be pleased with. And if I do it, I'll never become like the Frenchman Papillon, exiled to Devil's Island for the rest of his life. And he had a dream, a reoccurring dream, that he stood before a tribunal and the tribunal shouted, the charge against you is a wasted life. How do you plead? And in this dream, he kept answering, guilty, I plead guilty. I try my own case, the Apostle Paul said. And the goal of our instruction is that when you try your own case, you have done business with God and you can be satisfied with what you find. Third goal, a sincere faith. Now, I know you've heard this so many times. You say, oh, here it comes again, redundant stuff. But the word sincere there is a word unhypocritical. It's unfeigned in the King James. It means without hypocrisy. It comes from the theater. And you know that in the theater, most of the actors, 99, nine-tenths of them were men. So they, if they had a, a, a role for a woman, they just put a, raised a woman's face. That little mask, you've seen them in, in pictures on sticks, and they would, if they had to have a part that was sorrowful, they just put a sorrowful face on, a mask, sorrowful mask up before their face. If they had a part that was happy, they, they had a happy face, you know, they put up in front of them. And they just changed faces for every part that was needed. It's called hypocrisy, the changing of faces. Hypocrisy is the putting on of the mask. Now this is what he's saying. He's saying, you may fake it that you have a sense, that you have faith, but it is insincere. And the goal of instruction is that our faith is not insincere. That is, hypocritical. Now let me tell you, listen to me. Let me tell you what an insincere faith is. An insincere faith is professing to believe something to which I have not totally committed my own. I don't, this, am I, I'm not being funny right now. I, that's not funny stuff. An insincere faith is professing to believe your life to. Now let me tell you what insincere faith is is professing to believe in prayer and not praying. An insincere faith in the Bible is professing to believe in the Bible but never reading it and never obeying it. Now, I have people say to me, oh, I believe the Bible literally. I believe it's inspired from cover to cover. I believe the maps are inspired. Let me tell you how much of this Bible, this book, you believe. It's how much you obey. That's how much of it you believe. And we've put on this mask to say, 
and we got the verbiage. I mean, I, you know, I mean, even preachers, we have the right verbiage and we say all this stuff that we believe, but it is nothing but meaningless chatter if it's not obeyed. That's all it is. It's meaningless chatter. Now, when you get down to do business with God, this is where it begins. It begins with a profession that is matched by a practice. And there's a little saying that we've had around here since Peter Lorne was here. All that we believe, we practice, and the rest is meaningless talk. And sometimes it becomes imperative that we take a long look at our profession. And we may have started out in the right way in that profession. We may have committed ours like a little child. You know, I talk to little children. And, and what I'm absolutely convinced of is that those little children, they, they give themselves to God wholly as they understand Him so that what they do is they profess their faith in Jesus and they wholly commit to Him. But somewhere along the way for some of us, we just keep on doing the talking, but the commitment is no longer there. That's insincere faith. When Queen Victoria was coronated Queen of England, she automatically became the Empress of India. And there was a little um, province of India called Punjab. And Punjab, she became, that, that was part of her province, part of her empire. And it was ruled, quote-unquote, by a young prince, hardly a teenager, handed down from his ancestors, so that when she was coronated, this young prince brought her as a gift a diamond called the Kohonor diamond. Rare and priceless and marvelous. If you've ever been to the uh, uh, to the Tower of London, you've seen the Kohinoor diamond. It's like um, this value; it had no value on it. You couldn't, it's, it, you couldn't even sell it. I mean, it's just priceless. Now, years have passed, and colonialism has become a problem in England and India. And this young prince, now an adult, comes to London to visit Queen Victoria. He makes a trip to Buckingham Palace. And he says, uh, Your Majesty, could I see that, that diamond I gave you? And everybody was wondering, now what's happening here? Maybe he wants it back. So she uh, dispatched her guards to the Tower of London to bring back this priceless diamond. And they brought it back under guard and into Buckingham Palace to the room where Queen Victoria, her, her uh, guards and this young prince, this now an adult were. And he said, could I see it? And he took this diamond, she handed it to him carefully. He went over to a window to see it in the, in the light. And then he came back and knelt before Queen Victoria 
and said, When I gave you this, I was little more than a child. I didn't know much of what I was doing. And he paused, and they fought. He's going to say, I need it back. I mean, we're broke. But what he said was this. I want to give it to you again as an adult in my full strength, affection, devotion, and gratitude. And he handed it to her again. Now, sometime I think we have to come to those times in our life where we realize that we need to do it again. I'm not talking about getting saved again. You can't even get saved but once. But I'm, th- I'm talking about coming to a place where we, after having tried our case within ourselves to say, you know, I am not totally committed to God. And here I am. I want to do that. To prayer, to the church, to God, to His purpose, His will, to Scripture. And I want to do it in the full assurance that I know what I'm doing. Our Father, take these words, I pray, and to the heart of the believer's mind and will, bring them, bring what you would have us to do. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now, there might be some this morning, listen, you're going to come. You'll just step out and come to say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to commit to Christ what I understand and know about myself to Him, what I know about Him. Or you might want to come this morning to recommit your life to Christ. Call it rededication, I don't care what you call it. Or you may want to come and join a church. Renew the commitment to the, to the walk of God in a, in a fellowship of believers. How much this is going to mean to, to us is important. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.